0: While you're finding your seat, please turn with me to uh, Psalm 115. While you're turning there, i got some good news about last week's announcement about the harvest offering, or better news. uh, The 16,000 and so on that sounded really good last week, well, uh, more was actually given than that. And in recalculating, in a recount, (laughs) we found some more ballots. No, we found we found some more money, and actually the total is over twenty-one thousand dollars. And you'll see it in your bulletin. <laughs> Number of we have to be of uh, help, service, and support in other parts of the world because God opened your hearts and gave you a gift of generosity. A little over a week ago, the Supreme Court of the United States of America handed down a decision which was a victory for religious liberty in our nation. I don't know if you were aware of it, but by a vote of 5 to 4, the court ruled unconstitutional certain restrictions that had been imposed upon religious services in New York by the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. He had classified religious services as non-essential and placed incredible limitations on meeting size, while at the same time allowing for no restrictions upon businesses he deemed essential, including such things as bicycle shops and liquor stores. Well, Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote the following, Government is not free to disregard the First Amendment in times of crisis. At a minimum, that amendment prohibits government officials from treating religious exercises worse than comparable secular activities. Uh, I'm thankful for that ruling, and I'm thankful for the victory. But there is a side to the ruling which is nevertheless disappointing and concerning. Sadly, the case arrived in the Supreme Court after it lost occasion after occasion after occasion in the lower courts. Also, sadly, the vote was only 5 to 4. At our nation's founding, it would never have made it to the Supreme Court. And if it had, the vote would have been 9 to 0. And just think about God's providence in just the last few months. Because if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had still been on the court the decision would have been five to four in the other direction. That gives us a sense of the disregard there is in the United States for the worship of God and convictions that are grounded in the worship of God. Corresponding to the proliferation of a secular worldview, the rise of, of LGBTQ and BLM activism and the affirmation by many of critical race theory. If you don't know what that is, you will be knowing more as the days will come on. But the the affirmation of these things in this nation, we are seeing and we are witnessing an increasing hostility to biblically faithful Christianity. It is seen as hateful, and bigoted, and oppressive, and racist, and intolerant. Now, the history of the church of Jesus has seen a lot of martyrdom. But Christians were not martyred because they were such sincere followers of Jesus. As Paul Washer has said, that was the real reason, but no one heard that publicly they were martyred and they were persecuted as enemies of the state, as bigots, as narrow-minded stupid people who had fallen for a ruse and could contribute nothing to society, end quote. It will be no different with the persecution that is coming. I think of Jesus when he warned us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteous, for my sake, when they will accuse you of evil falsely. They will not say what good people you are. They're not going to bring you to persecution because you are faithful followers of Jesus. They're going to bring you to persecution because they're going to say evil and wicked things about you. That's what they believe. That's what they will try to convey. As Paul Washer continues, he says, We will be called things we are not and persecuted for being followers of Christ. And not for being followers of Christ, but for being radical fundamentalists who do not know the true way of Christ, which, of course, is love and tolerance. We will go down as the biggest, greatest bigots and haters of mankind in history. Don't think that if the world persecutes you, it's going to be sympathetic for your kindness and say all manner of good things about you. No, persecution comes with a wave of hostility, hate, and animosity. That's the way it came upon Jesus. And Jesus said it will be, if they did it to me, they will do it to you. Well, in effect, those who mock Christians mock the God we worship. It is with this matter of mockery in mind that I direct our attention this morning to Psalm 115. In this psalm, the people of God were under attack. And the God of heaven, their God, was being mocked. And the writer of the psalm stands before the congregation of these people to encourage them and to exhort them. And how does he design to do that? Well, he points them to the glory of their great God I'm going to read the psalm this morning and that's what I'm going to do as well to point us in this psalm to the glory of our great God I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety but we're only going to be able to cover the first three verses as we begin to study so please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word not to us O Lord not to us to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning as a congregation, your family, and we've gathered today in the midst of days that are unlike those that we have witnessed for years and years of our lives. And yet, these are great days. And this psalm helps us realize that. I pray that the closer we draw to you, and as you draw near to us, the closer that we realize that we are, and the more we feel and sense and know the glory and the face of God shining upon his people, Lord, I pray that you will strengthen our hearts through that and show us that it's great when we're closer to you. It's great when we have a better perception of your glory. It is great when we are walking and keeping in step with the Spirit. And so we pray for your help to understand and apply this text to our lives today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Psalm 115 is the message of a worship leader. He calls the congregation to worship and to praise the Lord. You saw that as he concludes the Psalms, he's, he's calling upon the people of God to bless the Lord and praise Him forevermore. And to be mindful of that. It's apparent also here that God's people are experiencing a time of affliction and a time of persecution because the nations are saying to them, where is your God? And they are questioning the power of God. They are questioning the presence of God. And they are questioning the very existence of the God of Israel. Where is your God? It's as though the nations are taunting the Israelites with this question. The insinuation is that they find themselves in circumstances that are troublesome. They find themselves in circumstances that are difficult and the nations are sneering at them. Because in their minds, the situation in which Israel finds itself is evidence that their God is no help at best to them in these circumstances. Perhaps at this time of the writing of the psalm, the, the Israelites were overrun by the Assyrians. Perhaps at this time, uh, the Israelites were away in exile such as in the days of Esther when the great persecution rose against the Israelites. There are numerous ideas that have filled the, people's, the minds of those commentators who've been working their way through this text. But what we do know is that the watching nations in some sense were gathered against God's people and were mocking them and mocking God. And yet, The message of the worship leader is for the people of God to look beyond their circumstances, to look beyond their situation, and beyond the mockery to God himself. The central point. The big idea here is the glory of God. This is the focus of this chapter. And the psalmist calls God's people to look squarely at that glory and to make much of it. To make much of it with their mouths and their hearts in praise, but to make much of it as well in the sense of knowing the glory of God in the midst of the difficulty in which they find themselves. So I call us this morning to the same thing. To look squarely, as squarely as we can, at seeing more clearly the glory of God and being strengthened by a greater knowledge of His glory. It is what we need when times are distressing and when the enemy encroaches and when troubles abound and dark clouds threaten. So I want you to behold in this wonderful psalm the compelling glory of God. Now, we're getting started today. We're going to continue it tomorrow. Well, we'll continue tomorrow. We'll continue it next week. Um, But... Here's what I want you to see as we begin. I want you to see the glory of God as the consuming passion. The glory of God as the consuming passion because the glory of God consumes the heart of the worship leader here. Before addressing the people of the Lord and calling them to praise God, the worship leader first first addresses God himself. And he says to the Lord, not to us. Not to us, but to your name, give glory. A couple of aspects in this cry stand out. First of all, the worship leader recognizes that he and his people do not deserve God's action on their behalf. It's not all about them. This whole cry and this whole psalm is fundamentally here to direct people's attention to God. To see God's, that God's character and that God's person and that God's being is what is at stake here in his people. Is not primarily to focus then on on the people themselves as though they're worthy, as though they should receive glory, as though that what they should get should be somehow reflective that they're better or different than the nations. It's not about them being better. This is about God. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. It is not for us and it is not because of us. He is coming to God and saying that the people are unworthy of God's attention and love. They need it to be sure, but they are not worthy of it. He is not coming to God in order to demand anything from God. The congregation has no right in themselves to his mercy. It is not as if the people are good people and who deserve that the Lord should help them, but rather what they need is God's mercy. You can't deserve mercy. You can only receive it because you're unworthy of God's goodness. They need God's grace. And he is just that kind of God. He possesses, as the psalmist says, steadfast love and faithfulness. The whole of this psalm is based on the fact that God is merciful and gracious. Not that the people are worthy. So the second aspect of this cry is that the worship leader longs for God to get glory, for God to get credit, for God to be recognized, for his praise to be increased and intensified. The the Lord is the one who is worthy. The poet says, To your name, give glory. That's his first prayer. This is a prayer, and he's going to God, not to us, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Who is the actor that he's calling upon to act here? God! (laughs) You, God, you give glory, not to us, but to your name. This is notable. The Lord is the one who is worthy. And isn't it striking that the psalmist is asking God to give glory to himself. To magnify his own greatness. In essence, he is saying, I may be asking you to act even for our benefit and blessing. But ultimately, I'm not doing it for me or for us. I'm doing it for you. I want, this is the heart of the psalmist, I want the nations to know how great you are. I want more voices to join in the chorus of praise that is sung by those who stand in awe and amazement at your magnificence. So he is not driven primarily by the desire to get relief from the unfortunate and difficult and troublesome circumstances in which the people find themselves. Now, when you and I are in a difficult spot, what do we tend to do automatically? Help me! Get me out of this! I just want out. But the first cry of this psalmist is, God, this is about your glory. This is about you, not me. Not driven primarily by the desire to get relief from the unfortunate circumstances. He's driven by concern for the reputation of God. And this call to worship God is driven by a passion to worship God. It's God-centered from first to last. Much of so-called worship of God in our day is actually the exaltation of man. It's more about me and my feelings than it is about God. It's more concerned with me getting something than it is whether God gets glory or not. You just listen to some of the singing. You just look at some of the actions. You just see the lives of the people who are erupting in certain kinds of words and just evaluate everything in light of it. Is this really about God's glory or is this more about my comfort? This psalmist stands in stark contrast to that kind of approach. He is consumed with what God is going to get out of his situation. He is more concerned about what God is going to get than what he might get. So whatever the psalmist might get, his preeminent and his passionate pursuit is that the Lord receive glory. Every Christian should make it our aim to have a heart like the heart of this psalmist. We should cry out to God in prayer. Our lives should be a cry out to God. Every ounce of our life, in every circumstance, in every breath, not to us, not to me, not to me, Lord, but to you, to your name, give glory. We should not hesitate to draw near to do so. It's right that we call to mind the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. It is right that we draw near. It is, it is right that God's people, in their desperation, cry out to God for help. And to the fact that God is a present help in times of trouble. Upon the basis of who He is, let us draw near to God that we might receive grace and mercy. Not what we deserve, the opposite of what we deserve. But we should draw near humbly. Gone should be every ounce of a sense of what God ought to do when we cry out to Him and when we appear before His throne for help. We need to bear in mind that once we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we walked, as we followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, In the sons of disobedience, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest. We deserve nothing but eternal punishment. For us to even be able to cry out to God with the hope that he will hear and respond is a praise to his mercy and to his majesty That he is the kind of God who bears in mind that we are but dust. That he is a merciful God who sees pitiful people. And his ear and his heart is turned toward them and toward their cry. Humility should permeate our souls when we approach the Lord. And not only should we approach the living God with humility, we should also be driven with a passion for God's glory, just like the psalmist here. The desire for God's glory to be magnified should propel and shape our prayers and our living and our priorities. Not what lifts me Lord, not what exalts me, not what satisfies my desires for comfort and ease, not what makes me feel good, but whatever magnifies your name is what I cry out for with every breath, O Lord. That should be our plea and our way of life. Jesus taught us to pray this way when he gave what many call the Lord's Prayer or might, might rightfully be called the Disciples' Prayer because the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said... This is the way you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The very first request, the very first uh, prayer to the Lord is that you would hallow your name. That you would glorify yourself. And then he goes on. Your kingdom comes. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are to be first and foremost in what we seek. As Jesus told us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so even when we're in a spot of trouble, I should say especially mindful when we're in a spot of trouble, even in the midst of uncomfortable circumstances, even when the world turns against God's people and begins to say, where is your God? You bunch of silly, fundamentalist, racist bigots. Where is your God? You know, there's no God. Certainly not your God because God wouldn't be like that. God wouldn't tell people no to what they want, to do, think, be, and feel. You're misled. You have rottenness in the bottom of your heart and that is what is producing your convictions. You hate instead of love. You are intolerant. You're racist. Now, racist in the big... You know, that that word basically is just being thrown out today. We... When you rightly understand that, that bigotry uh, that that, that likes maybe people that are of the same shade of skin as them versus others, that is reprehensible, and the Bible's totally against that. That's been put, steroids, it's been turned (laughs) in such a way and then put forth as if you want to be called something bad in our day, that's what they will call you. That's what they're going to ultimately call people who hold to truth. And even when that happens, the cry of our hearts needs to be not to us, not to us, but to your name, give glory. So, so from the outset, we see that the psalmist's consuming passion was the glory of God. And he moves forward from there in calling God's people to worship by directing them to consider now the glory of God put on display. And the rest of the psalm unfolds a display of God's glory. So we're only going to get to the tip of the iceberg today. He begins in displaying God's glory with the question, why? Why should the nations say, where is their God? Put another way, the mockery of the nations directed at God is ridiculous because we know better. There is no basis whatsoever for the nations to scorn our Lord. Just look at the gods they worship. Uh, There isn't even a comparison between them and our God who is the one true God. At this point, the psalmist puts our God on display in contrast to the gods of the nations. In verse 3, the psalmist states, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. That statement says a lot. That's why I can't get any further than this this morning. Our God... Is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. First, our God is in the heavens. Think about it. The nations are earthly minded, they build earthly temples and shrines in which they place their gods. And see their gods as living in those places and being constrained within those places. But, says the psalmist, our God is in the heavens. It draws our attention to the prayer of Solomon. After the great Solomonic temple was completed and the glory of God was manifest in a physical way in that temple, and Solomon Prayed a prayer of dedication, and in the midst of that prayer, he says to the Lord, But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. You see Solomon's wisdom here. We have built a temple, and we will meet with God at this temple. But we know that God is bigger than this temple. We know that God fills the heavens. This is just a place where we meet Him. He doesn't dwell with man in the sense that He is constrained or limited. He, do, he does Dwell and make himself known to man. That's not what Solomon's point is when he says, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? He's basically, basically saying, Is God confined to the earth? No, God is greater. This house cannot contain God, much less the heavens, because God made those heavens. So to say our God is in the heavens does not mean he is far off from helping us, but it is to say that he is not contained on the earth or by the earth. He is not limited. He is unlimited, even in His spatial presence. He made the heavens, and He made the earth after all. And He is greater far than any god, so-called, little g, who can be held within the bounds of an earthly temple or even the earth itself. To say our God is in the heavens is to say that He transcends the earth it is to say think for a moment about the size of the universe as best you can because you can't do it completely it boggles your mind you go as far as your mind can take you away from planet earth out into the outer reaches of this universe and you have not gotten one iota closer to or further from god than you were than when you started he is there and he is there Where can i go from your presence where can i flee from your presence no matter where I go, He is there. He is not contained. He is not limited to a point in space. He transcends all of the physical limitations that are part and parcel of our very being. In the sense that God is incapable of being manipulated or being controlled, He Is in the heavens. He is not manipulated by what happens on the earth. He is not controlled by what happens on the earth. He is beyond any assault of the nations. Our God is in the heavens. What can these nations do? Who gather themselves together and say, Where is their God? Their assault upon God is like taking a spitball and trying to, squirt it through a straw at the moon to come against God. It is laughable that people think they can escape God by closing their eyes to his existence. They do. That's what we were doing by nature before he opened them up. To behold the wonder of his being. Now he wants us to be sure of the reality of the greatness of his being. He is beyond any aggression that could be launched at him by his enemies. Psalm 2 depicts it this way. Why do the nations rage and the peoples of the earth plot in vain? The kings of the earth Set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Our God is in the heavens. He is where their gods are not, nor shall they ever be. To him be glory. But not only is our God in the heavens, he is also exercising sovereign dominion from there. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases what he pleases he does everything that he pleases he does no one has power god He has power over all things. This statement can only be applied to the one true God. There is only one being who can be in this position to do all that he pleases. Neither you nor I can do all that we please. In fact, we do a very small fraction of what we please because we can't. We can't do everything we want to do. Just think of the trouble we could get into if we could. There are plenty of things every day we would like to do, don't cause we cannot do it. But there is nothing that God cannot do if it pleases Him to do it. Moreover, there is nothing that God will not do if it pleases Him. In Isaiah 45, He declares, I am the "Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being." And create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. He does according to his will. None, none can stay his hand. This was the confession of Nebuchadnezzar. After God humbled him and then his reason returned to him, Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven and blessed the Most High God, and praised Him, and these were His words. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Paul, writing to the Ephesians, states simply that We have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That is, God plans and God purposes what He pleases. And He acts in keeping with those plans and with those purposes It is another way of saying what the psalmist says here. Our God is in the heavens and our God does all that he pleases. Nothing can constrain him. Nothing can restrain him. Nothing can sidetrack him or surprise him. False gods, calamities, the devil, demons, fraud, an attempt to steal an election, Even persons making unconstrained choices with total disregard for God can only accomplish His purpose. That is, when people are living in absolute and direct disobedience to God by their willful choice to disobey God, they can only fulfill exactly what He pleases because He is in that kind of control. He is in that kind of sovereign rule and reign over all creation. Even disobedient Christians cannot thwart God's purpose and plan and determination. That is not to say that you should be happy for the sins you committed that he's using. You should mourn those sins. But you can be assured that this God who is sovereign is using even those sins for his glory. He's even using them in your life for good, but ultimately his glory. Everything fits in the overall scheme designed by what pleases God. Our God is unassailable. He is unthwarted and undaunted. He cannot be overcome. The psalmist wants the people in the midst of their discomfort, in the midst of their being assaulted by the nations and being mocked by the nations to call to mind their God. Our God is in the heavens. Don't be be taken off guard. God is not taken off guard by these nations and their mockery. Don't you be taken off guard by the nations and their mockery either. He's no less in control when they mock than when they don't. Keep looking to him and knowing that his plan is on course. Sometimes those plans are going to go through choppy waters. But victory is the final arrival. And the victory is glory to God. And his people love that because they want the glory of God. And they look forward to the day when they will surround the throne with praises for the amazing way that God brought them through thick and thin, up and down, in and out, light and darkness, to come before his throne with amazement at his mercy and steadfast love. The greatest work bear this in mind as well. Even when God is weaving things together, He weaves all things together for good, for His glory and His people. And be mindful of this. The greatest work of God that has been done in the context of history was done in the darkest day. When man was at his humanity, was at its apex of evil and darkness. The greatest work our Lord was pleased to do took place in the midst of this kind of circumstances that are around the congregation in Psalm 115. Mockery and hostility. For it was the scribes and the chief priests and the elders gathered around Jesus while he was hanging on the cross. And this is what he saved others. He cannot save himself. They sneered at him. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. Where is your God? He said, I am the Son of God. But look, look, he's hanging on a cross. The mockery of God's enemies did not thwart God's work. And it did not thwart God's plan. It fulfilled it. Jesus at that moment was bearing the sin debt we owed to God for our sins. He was absorbing the wrath that was due our iniquity. He was experiencing the mockery we deserve for the foolishness of our turning away from the one true and glorious God. The cross itself occurred according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And it involved mockery. And it involved people innocent saying, Where is God? It was the will of the Lord to crush his son. He has put him to grief. The will of the Lord is, in fact, prospered by the act of putting his son to grief. Only through the work of Christ on the cross could it be said, To God's great glory. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our God is in the heavens. And even when the sinful, hostile world is gathered together against his very own Son, he is doing what pleases. It is not pleasure in crushing the Son in and of itself, but pleasure in crushing the Son for the purpose of revealing God's steadfast love and faithfulness. When you read Ephesians chapter 1, you see the plan of God for bringing salvation to people articulated from eternity past to the present and over and over, like three or four times in that section, to the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glorious grace. All of God's work and salvation is not primarily about you and me. It's primarily about Him. And that's a good thing. If it were about you and me, period, it would never happen. Because it's for Him, you can rest assured that it's true and it's eternal. His saving grace and mercy toward you if you are in Christ. It's upon the basis of the Father's putting the Son to grief and Christ's sacrifice of Himself for this purpose that sinners who will turn from disobedience and trust in Christ Jesus are reconciled, redeemed, and forgiven. What must you do to be saved from God's wrath through your sins? You must turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Trust in God's Son, whom He bruised in your place. And If you haven't done that this morning, oh, I hope you will. I hope you will look around and see all the turmoil in the world and see that, you know what? All the animosity and hostility that seems to be brewing and rising up against the people of God is only proof that the Bible is exactly true. Because this is what the very thing Jesus has said would be the case. Awaken and come to follow this same Lord. Bend your knee to Christ and trust in His work on the cross. Sin does not thwart God's plan. and false gods do not thwart God's will, mockers do not stand in God's way, they can only unwittingly find themselves to be dreadfully defeated as God magnifies His glory while doing good for His people. Now the godless nations rage in blindness. They lift their voices against the Lord. They connive to throw off the restraint and the constraint of God. They ask, where is your God? They've been asking this for a long time and it's growing in our society. More and more they've Written God out of politics. They've written God out of sex. They've written God out of life. They've written God out of society. Large numbers. And so the animosity towards those who still follow is felt and seen. But followers of Christ, you who reverence the one true almighty and eternal God who made the heavens and the earth, don't. Be afraid of them. Don't run from them. Don't compromise truth because you're afraid of offending them. Stand fast. But not only that, most importantly, stand fast beholding the fact that our God is in the heavens and He does all that pleases Him. Your God is, is the only God there is. And the animosity and the resistance of the godless merely display the blindness that has engulfed their thinking. Thinking themselves wise, they have become fools and suppressed the truth. They have exchanged glory for shame and darkness and degradation. We must not allow ourselves to be influenced by them to fear or to anger or to worry or... And we must not allow ourselves to be like them. The sovereignty of our glorious God assures us and enables us to hold on with hope no matter what is going on around us. If we seek his glory, then we can rest assured. Seek his glory we must. And assured we will be. Because God will glorify himself. That's why that should be a prayer of ours. Yes, it is good. Is it good with you that God seeks His glory? Is it okay with you if that means that you can look around and sometimes see in the world where justice is smashed, where kindness is squashed, because that's the world we live in? Because it is to His glory to rescue His people out from such a world and to bring judgment down. Upon it. David, in Psalm 11, paints an alarming picture. He writes, The wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can? The righteous do. Here was his answer The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. He tests the righteous. When all around our souls gives way, it's a test. Is he then our hope and stay? When the nations say, where is your God? We have a reply from the Lord himself. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The Lord is in His holy temple. We will trust in Him. We will hope in Him. We will worship Him. By His grace, we will seek His glory. Let's pray.